Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. Good evening, everybody. I'm in for Joy Reid tonight. Now, there is no uh, clearer snapshot of where a country stands, who it is and what it wants, than the results of an election. And that's why your timeline is bogged down with these hot takes and a wake-up call about woke politics and who's to blame, and why the pundits are throwing the panic room wide open for the Democrats. One of the takeaways you definitely saw was how the election, in particular the one in Virginia, was a referendum on the left's failure to deliver their agenda, a rebuke on everything from critical race theory to the Democrats' election strategy. But let's be honest, here's the thing. All those takes are like searching the edges while refusing to see what's staring right back at you. And I can assure you, black voters in Virginia are not shocked by the so-called Yunkin shocker. This isn't about enthusiasm. This isn't about Democrats not doing enough to exercise their base. And this definitely is not about messaging or even about beloved. This is about the fact that a good chunk of voters out there are okay with white supremacy. Let's call a thing a thing. Actually, scratch that. They are more than okay. This afternoon, reporter Yamiche Alcindor asked President Biden about the results. She clearly understood the assignment. What's your message, though, for Democratic voters, especially black voters, who see Republicans running on race, education, lying about critical race theory, and they're worried that Democrats don't have an effective way to push back on that? Well, I think that uh, the whole answer is just to speak the truth, lay out where we are. Some voters are also giddy over candidates who have no business governing, like Senate hopefuls in two separate states, mind you, accused of strangling their wives. One even writing a fictional thriller detailing graphic violence against women. Now, if leaders are a reflection of their voters, it isn't looking so great for the once grand old party, is it? Now, the elected lieutenant governor in Virginia hates a woman's right to choose, but live from the sunken place, she certainly loves her guns. And while a trigger-happy congresswoman says she gave birth in a truck, so obviously no one else deserves parental leave, because in the bizarro world, that's logical. And yet the election narrative piercing through the timeline is how Democrats better be concerned. And we're here to say, no, that ain't it. America is who should be concerned because this group, the Republican Party and the voters who empower them, has the sole agenda of suppressing the other group to hold on to its power by forcing voter suppression laws that expunge and even penalize black and brown participation. They can erase white supremacy from the history books. Why not? Because the governors will comply. They can take up arms. Why not? The judges will protect them. And speaking of judges, we have the conservative court putting abortion rights on the chopping block, at which point we have to ask, who are we anymore? And we got the answer last night. This is very much who America is and always has been. 
And there's nothing shocking about it. Joining me now is Susan Del Percio, Republican strategist, Fernan Amandi, Democratic pollster and strategist, and my friend Aaron Haynes, editor at large of the 19th and named today one of the Roots 100 most influential African Americans of 2021. So, Aaron is one of the most influential. We will kick it off with you, my friend. Uh, congratulations, by the way. Um, Aaron, I think I've been so frustrated hearing a lot of these garbage takes about what black voters didn't do. Uh, our friend Estad Hurton uh, wrote about this in the New York Times and talked about how black voters shouldn't be blamed for what happen happened in Virginia. Um, let's talk about some of the other groups. I mean, overwhelmingly, white women stayed loyal to the Republican Party, yet you don't hear takes about that and saying, well, you know, why is this group the problem? Why do you think that is? And what's your take on the election landscape and what played out last night? Well, thank you, Tiffany. It's good to be with you. And congratulations on your Route uh, 100 standing in, in this year's rankings. Look, history tells us, black and white memo, just so you know, uh, history tells us that race and racism remain a potent factor in American politics because they work. Uh, this is a strategy that is not new. So we should not call it Trumpism because the former president was just the latest white male politician to tap into this long legacy of campaigns that has deployed race lies, conspiracy, and voter suppression as a path to victory. I mean, this is the original lie. Uh, I think, you know, we saw in exit polling white voters breaking something like 70-30s, uh, you know, for Yunkin, Black voters breaking 86 to 13 for McAuliffe, and two-thirds of Latinos and Asians also breaking for McAuliffe. So, yes, uh, it is time to stop making voters of color either the savior or the scapegoat in every cycle as a narrative and really start asking why white voters and candidates are either complicit or condoning of racist campaign strategies. I cannot echo that point loud enough. And Susan, uh, I'd love to get your take on this because we did see in the polling last night, the exit polling, white women did remain loyal. And look, this is not something that started with Trump. And I think if we're going to move forward, we have to be honest about that. Racists have always found a home in the Republican Party. People who traffic in white supremacy have always felt comfortable here. Why wow. does that happen and what can be done now to change that? Well, Republicans use that or some Republicans choose to use that strategy because it works. I hate to say it, but that's the ugly part of what we're talking about. And Erin and, and you both said something very important. It's not up to women of color or white women or anybody to be the savior or to be the blame. This is how we are operating as a country. And I think one of the th one of my takeaways from last night's election results is that I think that Democrats may have been over ecstatic about their positioning this past January. It was a 50-50 Senate. It was a three or five majority in in the House. And and Biden was did win. But, you know, that NBC poll that came out this weekend showed something really important. I think that's where Democrats and, frankly, Republicans are going to play on. And that is that 36 percent of the people voted for Trump because they liked him or his policies. And 6 percent voted for Trump because they didn't like Biden's. Only 27 percent of the people voted for Biden because they liked his policies. And 20 percent 20% voted for Donald Trump, I mean, for Joe Biden, because they did not like Donald Trump. That was not a, a mandate on Biden's policies. And 
at this point, it's not surprising given the history. If you look at it's always the opposing party that wins New Jersey and in um, Virginia. But when we look at other races, especially in how things played out in the suburbs and Nassau County in New York is a prime example of that. Donald Trump wasn't mentioned once. Education was not an issue. It all came down to taxes and criminal justice reform, specifically uh, cash bail. And I think that that's something that we all need to start focusing more on as we look at 2022. These are going to be elections that are district-based, not nationalized. Yeah, they, they may be district-based. For now, I want to bring you in here because, look, I, I take Susan's point that it's not one particular group's um, responsibility uh, to save this democracy. However, when you do see overwhelmingly white women staying loyal to a party that, that will have an adverse impact on their life, just like it will people of color, and white people overwhelmingly uh, voting for policies that have an adverse impact on all of our lives— I mean, I got to ask, uh, what do we do about this? Take a listen to a gentleman um, who is kind of su- he's suggesting violence um, as a result of not trusting that uh, the, the votes will be counted accurately. Take a listen and we'll talk about it on the other side. This is tyranny. When do we get to use the guns? No, and I'm, and, I, and I'm not, that's not a joke. I'm not saying it like that. I mean, literally, where's the line? How many elections are they going to steal before we kill these people? So, no, I, 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 no, hold on. I, I'm, no, stop. Hold on. And now I'm going to denounce that. I'm going to tell you why. Because you're playing into all their plans, and they're trying to make you do this. These are the people voting, and those are the people who they are voting in office. Right? They have turned the Internet's comment section uh, into real live candidates. Fernand, what's your take? Well, Tiffany, I mean, I think the most uh, disturbing takeaway and consequence of last night's elections, not just in, in Virginia, but of course uh, in New Jersey as well, is that we saw something that I quite frankly did not think was possible. We saw the normalization of an armed, violent insurrection and attempted coup against the United States by the party that was the instigator, the the planners and the plotters, if you will, and the voters of Virginia and the voters of New Jersey, in essence, said, you know what, not a big deal. Let's move on from that. Also taking into consideration that in Virginia, many of those plotters actually laid out the plans for that armed insurrection that happened less than 10 months ago. This was the first major quasi-national test on what happened around that attempted coup, which to me continues to be the most important issue in America today, in that you have a Republican Party that has unveiled and unmasked itself as being hostile to American democracy. They do not believe in our system of government. They don't believe in the Constitution. And as that clip just showed, they are willing to take up arms in larger numbers. And the voters of Virginia and New Jersey, in in essence, said yesterday, no problem. It's okay. You get a pass. I I don't know where it goes from here. Uh, There were no easy solutions, no easy answers. And yes, you can look at Joe Biden's sagging approval ratings. You can look at the fact that, you know, COVID hasn't quite been vanquished and we haven't gotten back to full normal yet. You can look at the uh, messy Afghanistan pullout. I don't think any of those things, however, explain that last night, in my judgment, at least, the voters of two major Democratic states 
in essence, said there is no penalty to pay for the Republican yeah. Party that was behind an armed insurrection. Yeah, which is crazy. So, Susan, I want to bring you back in here because um, half the Republican Party does not believe that their votes will be counted accurately. So, yes, Yunkin uh, won in Virginia last night. But I was prepared if McAuliffe had won. Will this group of people ever accept another uh, election result that they don't like? Um, and I think it's kind of scary that the Republican Party is kind of trafficking in the disbelief in democracy itself. It's terrifying. And to your question, they if, if McAuliffe would have won, you would have heard it was rigged. There's no doubt about it. And they would have been wrong and it would have been playing into the big lie. And I agree in my heart about democracy being on the line, that we may not recognize this country in, in, in a few years if we cannot maintain faith in our elections and if we cannot broaden our, our country's voting base. Everyone should be voting. We need to get more vo voter participation, not less. That will make us a better country. But I'm going to go political now. If you want to win races, you can't tell people what they think should what you think is the most important issue facing them. You need to speak to what their most important issue is that they see for themselves. And that's where you have that's where the build back better is. It hasn't been communicated well enough to the general public so they can relate to it so they can say, oh, I'm getting this. Yes, I need child care. Yes, I need universal pre-K. And yes, I also need broadband and bridges. These are yeah. all great things for people to know that are coming their way. But you cannot just build on we're going to change the social net of our society. It doesn't work if you want to win races. And that what that's what needs to happen. I am a Republican who have supported Democrats and want Democrats to win because I believe in democracy and I believe in governance. We can disagree on policy, but the Republicans aren't governing and they're still able to be influential in this process. And we have to say the only solution to that is by more Democrats winning. Yeah. And so, Aaron, to that point, because I, I take Susan's point about it's all about, um, you know, giving some Democrats something to hold on to. But let's be honest here, Aaron. You could have given this message to a lot of people. It would not matter. The Republicans dangled things like CRT, critical race theory, um, any of these like ghost philosophies they have. The subtext of all this was we can't let these black and brown people run the country. The messaging didn't matter. Aaron, um, in Virginia, I, you know, I think voters of color have such a huge position to play in this uh, American body politic. And the AAPI community um, could have made a huge difference in the Virginia race and some of these razor thin margins. Um, and sometimes voters of color get overlooked because you've got the Republicans yelling like, hey, look, the black and brown folks are coming for us. Do you think messaging is the part of the problem here? Well, you know, Tiffany, uh, Susan brought up history. And, and I think, you know, as we reflect on today, which is the one year anniversary of last year's election, a record election, which saw record turnout among voters of color in particular, who were part of the coalition that delivered uh, Democratic victory at the presidential level and, and gave Democrats control of Congress. Last night was an important reminder of why it's important to know our history and to learn our history, right? Because what we saw last night and what we are likely to keep seeing in our politics going forward is history repeating itself. History tells us that the culture wars in our politics have centered on the classroom before, 
when students were legally separated on this specious and racist theory that mixing in a public school was somehow going to lead to interracial marriage. I mean, history tells us that some of our fellow citizens actively fought against integration after the Brown versus Board decision and the teaching of our full American story, including parents in Virginia. And by the way, this was also considered parents' rights, right? Uh, it's the erasure of that history, not the actual academic field of critical race theory that is not coming for anyone's K-12 curriculum, by the way, that all American parents should be concerned about. And yeah. we, need to talk, we need to talk about who we are talking about when we talk about parents, right? Um, you know, yes, this, this, this is the conversation that we need to be having right now. These are the lessons that we need to be taking a year from last year's historic election and looking ahead to 2022 and 24 and beyond. Yeah. And I look, I don't want to make it seem like this was just, you know, a washout. I think that's part of the media narrative. But for none, there were some historic elections that happened last night. You had uh, Michelle Wu, uh, Boston's first uh, woman and uh, Asian-American mayor. Ed Ganey was Pittsburgh's uh, first black mayor. Um, Aftab Purval, Cincinnati's first Asian-American mayor. Nadarius Clark, Virginia's youngest Democratic delegate. So there were um, some sweeping victories. And I think there is some danger in getting caught up. And, you know, Democrats need to be so concerned. Um, I think Democrats need to be concerned about voting rights, but there were some small victories last night, and I don't think those should get overlooked. Uh, your thought on the, the good part, the good narrative that happened last night? Well, I mean, it certainly is uh, a silver lining if you want to think about, you know, the future direction of the country. But again, I go back to the point, Tiffany, you know, if these were normal times, if we were dealing with a normal Republican Party pre-Trump where, uh, you know, there'd be ideological differences, but the question of democracy was not in question you know, I think you, there's reason to be optimistic. But again, I, I'm of the opinion, and I say this is the son of Cuban exiles who were forced to leave their country because of an autocratic overthrow. When the Republicans are on the precipice of recapturing the Congress without a voting rights bill having been passed to protect the integrity of elections, I am not sure, as Susan Del Persico said earlier, we can count on this democracy being intact and being and having the full integrity of an election in 2024 and beyond. And I think that's why this is the dominant issue and, and really needs to be going forward. Yeah. And look, I mean, you heard it here from Susan Del Parcio, white Republican woman that said the key to this is having more Democratic candidates win. So uh, hopefully, Susan, you are shouting loud uh, to, to some of your fellow Republican Party women. <laughs> so thanks so much uh, to Susan Del Parcio, Fernanda Mondi and Aaron Haynes uh, for joining me and breaking down some of the crazy stuff that happened last night. And up next on the readout, the Supreme Court appears to be all set to expand the rights of gun owners. On the same day, Republicans in the United States Senate shoot down voting rights legislation. I mean, I don't understand. Plus, Joy's interview with Huma Abedin on working side by side with Hillary Clinton and the scandals involving her husband, Anthony Weiner. In every one of those instances, Joy, I really tried to make the best decision for my son, for myself, until I got to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. You don't want to miss that interview. Plus, it could be a major turning point in the pandemic as children begin getting vaccinated. The readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. 
And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. All right, let's have some straight talk. If you think last night was bad, brace yourselves, because just wait until November of next year when Republicans, after securing their majority through gerrymandering, might retake the House and maybe even the Senate. But that doesn't have to happen. Democrats have a remedy. And in fact, they have two, the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. Now, today, Senate Democrats, with the help of just one sole Republican, that was Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, they failed to pass the bill named after civil rights icon and former Congressman John Lewis. Now, the law would replace the part of the 1965 Voting Rights Act that was struck down by the U.S. Supreme Court in 2013. You guys remember that. Specifically, the bill would bring back the pre-clearance requirement that was Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. And this would be pre-clearance from the Justice Department or federal courts before states can make changes to their election processes. Now, the bill would also restore voters' ability to challenge laws like those related to redistricting or onerous voter ID requirements that are more than likely discriminatory. Now, I should note that since its passage, the Voting Rights Act has been reauthorized and amended five times times and all times those were with large bipartisan majorities now under the last president to reauthorize the law that was george w bush not a single senate republican opposed the bill and only 33 house republicans opposed it at the time objection to the law was viewed as an embarrassment not so today now it's a proud talking point for the republican party and sadly this vote is just a taste of what's to come what's next Banning abortions, weakening gun protections, and, yes, banning books. Let's talk about it. Joining me now, Ellie Mistal, justice correspondent for The Nation and bringer of The Truth and the Fire. Ellie, I could not think of anyone better to reflect the collective outrage we're all feeling tonight. I'm so incredibly frustrated. Now, look, we saw what happened last night. Like I said, there were some positives that came out of it. But for the most part, um, the Republicans did have a lot of uncomfortable victories. I was so frustrated when this failure was laid at the feet of black voters who are subjected to incredible, um, ridiculous voter suppression laws. Talk about what happened today and the failure to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 is the most effective piece of legislation in American history. It did. It finished what the Civil War started. And it was massively effective, which is why Republicans hate it, which is why they've been trying to gut it, which is why when it gets gutted in 2013, in that case that you just talked about, Shelby County, that's what leads to Trump winning in 2016. Right. It's a one-to-one connection there. And so if Democrats liked what they, what they saw happen in Virginia last night, then by all means, keep doing what you're doing. Because the failure to pass the Voting Rights Act, the failure to empower and protect the base of the Democratic Party, the part of the party that's going to vote for you at over 85 percent levels, um, when you fail to do that, you see what happened last night. So your choice really is to 
empower and protect black voters or run along and chase after the 75% of non-college educated white women that repudiated you last night and are running around thinking that the reason why their daughters are embarrassed for them on TikTok is because of a Toni Morrison novel. Right. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly, Ellie. But, you know, there are a couple of um, pieces. I'm just curious your, like, which of these uh, pieces of legislation you like, because there is a John Lewis Voting Rights Act, which some argue is uh, weak. Uh, there's H.R. 1, um, which, you know, never got passed. There's the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, all of these efforts to save voting rights. And I also want to point out that with Lisa Murkowski, um, look, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act definitely would impact uh, the indigenous community, um, Alaska Natives in Alaska. So, obviously, Obviously, Lisa Murkowski would lend her support to it. Um, but that doesn't erase the fact that there are all of these other um, pieces of legislation that just can't seem to get life into it. So are we kind of screwing ourselves, voting against ourselves, negotiating against ourselves with some of these watered down versions of the bill? Anyway, let's start with this. Like, I'll use a Chris Rock joke, right? If I'm starving and you give me a cracker, I'm like, oh, that's the best cracker I ever had. Right. So the John Lewis, that's a cracker. The the Freedom Vote Act, that's a cracker. I will take I will take whatever sustenance the Democrats are willing to put forward in order to protect and empower um, black people. However, the real issue here is not the legislation. It's the Supreme Court, because the Supreme Court are the people who took away the Voting Rights Act to begin with. The Supreme Court are the people who refuse still to this day to enforce the 15th Amendment that people literally die for in this country. It's the Supreme Court that refuses to aggressively implement the 19th Amendment. Right. So, like, if you do not fix the Supreme Court. The John Lewis Voting Rights Act was trying to restore something that, that John Roberts and his conservative cronies took away. There's nothing to say that even if you pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, that Roberts wouldn't take it away again. I preferred H.R. 1 to the Freedom to Vote Act because while both are similarly good in terms of voting rights, what did Joe Manchin, I mean, think about this, what did Joe Manchin, what did President Manchin want out of the H.R. 1 that he wanted, that, that he did not put into his Freedom to Vote Act? All the ethics reforms, forcing a, forcing a person to release their tax returns um, before they run for president, prohibiting presidents from funneling money from the Oval Office to their family-run businesses. That what was that's what yeah. was in the Freedom uh, the the For the People Act that Manchin took out of the Freedom to Vote Act. So I think the For the People Act was better, but. At, but again, at this point, I will take anything right. from this party that actually allows people to go vote easily and frictionlessly and without the voter suppression done by the Republicans and the party won't pass it. Yeah. And look, I don't want to lose sight of the fact because there's a lot of talk about, you know, Manchinema and I got your shade there with uh, President Manchin. Um, but look, I, I think, you know, we give outside attention and undue attention to these two. We can't lose sight of the fact that it's Republicans who are obstructing being able to pass voting rights law. And with this narrow majority, that's why these two. But I don't want to lose sight of the fact that it is the Republican Party who is obstructing people who look like you and me, uh, our path to the ballot box. And we shouldn't lose sight of that. And look, if it's not going to be um, the state legislature to save democracy, then people look to Congress. If it's not going to be Congress, people look to the courts. It looks like it's not going to be the courts either. So we'll have to keep our eye on that. But I want to switch topics, speaking of the courts, because today the U.S. Supreme Court heard a challenge to a New York state gun law uh, that limits firearms 
outside of the home. And under that law, residents seeking a permit to carry concealed weapons in public must demonstrate proper cause, which has been interpreted, uh, Ellie, as a special need for self-protection. Now, the law has been in place for over a century, but again, the conservative majority on the Supreme Court now appears ready to strike it down. And Ellie, I don't have to tell you, this would have major ramifications for other states with similar laws. That means more guns in public spaces. You saw in the last block, this guy wants to know when we can use guns and start killing people. And like the New York City uh, subway, for instance, where it's a public space, they're saying people can carry guns. Take a listen, Ellie, to Justice Samuel Alito uh, during today's arguments. All these people with illegal guns, they're on the subway, they're walking around the streets, but the ordinary, hardworking, law-abiding people I mentioned, no, they can't be armed. The idea of proliferating arms on the subway is precisely, I think, what terrifies a great many people. Now, in contrast with Alito, Justice Stephen Breyer pointed out the obvious implications of uh, unfettered access to guns in public spaces. Take a listen. I think that people of good moral character who start drinking a lot and who may be there for a football game or, or some kind of soccer game can get pretty angry at each other. And if they each have a concealed weapon, who knows? And there are plenty of statistics in these briefs to show there are some people who do know. And a lot of people end up dead. Now, I should say Justice Roberts asked uh, how many muggings take place in the forest. People do get shot in the forest, asked Dick Cheney. But this is the first time in over a decade that the Supreme Court has taken up some of these gun laws. Um, what should we be concerned about here? Because this conservative court looks like they're about to expand people having guns in a lot of dangerous places. So bad. It's so bad what's going on right now. I mean, I, I imagine Sam Alito sounded exactly like Bernard Getz sounded in 1984, right before he plugged four unarmed black people on the subway. I bet, I bet, I bet Alito sounds exactly like Getz would have sounded that day. Just to put this in context, on Monday, we had conservative justices arguing that any rando bounty hunter can regulate a woman's reproductive choice. On Wednesday, we had some of those same conservatives like Sam Alito argue that the state of New York could not regulate a white man getting on the subway with an over with a loaded overcompensation symbol um, to do whatever he needs to do on that subway. Like that, that is the hypocrisy that we are dealing with when we were talking about conservative control of the Supreme Court. The, the upshot of today's case is that New York's permitting requirements, which require you to show proper cause. And just by the way, proper cause, that's literally the first line of the Second Amendment, a well-regulated yeah. militia being necessary for a free state. So proper cause is in the Second Amendment. But the conservatives are going to take that out of the Second Amendment and say that New York State must issue gun permits to anybody who can fill out a form and that those people must be allowed to take those guns into public spaces like our subways and, and, and other, you know, bars. Yeah, it's a bad combination. Um, I wanted to get into the Kyle Rittenhouse trial with you, but we are out of time. I'm putting you on the spot. Can I see you Saturday morning, my friend, on the Cross Connection and we can talk about it then? Oh, my God, it's not Saturday already? We still have more to speak? <laughs> we'll pick up this conversation on Saturday, Ellie. Thank you so much, Ellie Mistal, for joining us. But don't go anywhere, because up next, Joy's amazing interview with longtime Hillary Clinton advisor Huma Abedin. You don't want to miss this. That's coming up right after the break. Stay tuned. It's Monday night. It's 
Monday, everyone. We're happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. All right, Joy sat down with Huma Abedin. She's a longtime advisor to Hillary Clinton to talk about her fabulous new book, Both Slash and Take a Look. Huma Abedin is one of Hillary Clinton's most trusted advisors. By her side, from the Clinton administration to her presidential campaigns, to the Secretary of State office, where she was one of the highest profile Muslim Americans to serve in the executive branch. You may also know her from her relationship with Anthony Weiner, but she has not told her full story publicly until now. In her new book, Both And, Abedin shares her extraordinary personal journey from growing up in Saudi Arabia to being the right-hand person to one of the most important and powerful women in the world. And Huma Abedin joins me now. Uh, I was saying this to you off camera, so I'm just going to say it to you on camera. It is sort of shocking to me to think about the fact that we've never really seen you do interviews or hear you because you're so familiar to those of us who've been following particularly Democratic politics for so long. But you really were the person that was just off to the right. So how did it feel to move from just off to the right to center stage telling your story? Well, to be honest, first of all, I'm so excited to be on the show with you today. But um, I have to say, I prefer the being behind the scenes. Yeah. I prefer being invisible. Everything is new to me. So I'm in, in I'm emerging into this world where all the things I would say to somebody else, we were talking about this earlier. Don't yeah. forget to say this. Don't forget to do this. I know all the mechanics, but yeah. being in the chair... Um, it's a whole different experience. Yeah. Just getting used to it. Getting used to it. And you're doing a brilliant job of it. So I want to talk about your family. I I am semi-obsessed with your upbringing, which was international. It was cross-cultural. It was fundamentally American and fundamentally immigrant, but also quite international. You were around the world. You lived in Saudi Arabia. You come from, I wrote this down, you come from free people, free women who were true to their faith, but within the constructs of that faith, really insisted on education, insisted on being free. That's right. Talk about what that did for you growing up as a, as a young girl, as a young Muslim girl. Well, you know, um, Joy, it is one of the reasons I start the book saying that I grew up surrounded by stories. I was raised to honor a legacy of my forefathers and my foremothers. And the arc of my book ends where I really do honor the matriarchs in my family because I came from, my father was Indian, my mother, you know, my mother was a refugee, had to leave India, and they migrated to Pakistan after the partition. And they, for them, education was almost a religion. And um, I owe it, I write the story of my grandmother a hundred years ago demanding to be educated, which was not the norm for girls at her time. And she was able, actually, my grandmother never went to a formal school. My mother was mostly homeschooled. And then at, you know, 21 to get a Fulbright or 23 to get a Fulbright to come to the United States, she gave up everything, her family, her people fought Her parents were crazy. What are you doing? Sending your unmarried daughter, leaving Pakistan, getting on an airplane and going to Philadelphia. And she did. I mean, she followed her dreams. And I am so conscious of the sacrifices that my parents made. My father, you know, struggled with terminal illness. He was ill most of my life. But they did this 
for their children. I mean, they pursued the American dream. And boy, did did I get to live this extraordinarily privileged life because of them. I have to tell you, everyone, it is worth it is worth getting a copy of this book just because it's an incredible story. But just the first hundred pages talking about your family. It's brilliant. I mean, you're in Queens, you're in Michigan, you're like all over and then you're in Saudi Arabia. It's brilliant. I have to talk about your relationships because you it, it is it feels natural having read about your upbringing and your background that you gravitated toward these relationships with people who were so different from you. Talk about Hillary Clinton, somebody so formidable in your life that she almost could have been in your family. That is an observation that nobody has made, but it, it it is true for me that I left, you know, one of the reasons I liked growing up in the Middle East is having this really strong sense of community and support, and you're kind of involved in each other's lives. If there's a funeral, everyone shows up. If there's a wedding, everyone shows up. It, you know, it's kind of this culture where when my father had to go to the hospital for his kidney transplant, you know, our friends took us in, moved our furniture over for us to be comfortable. And my parents really taught us, you know, I think one of the most important lessons my parents taught us was radical empathy. Like they were not parents who told us so much as showed us by example. And then in the end, it was our choice to do whatever it is. All they required is we be educated. Yeah. To land in the White House and to have a boss like Hillary Clinton, I felt like that same kind of culture of community, Hillary land, there's a whole chapter. Yeah, yep, yep. It was very similar. I'm, going to find, I'm trying to find this quote here about um, Hillary Clinton staying with Bill Clinton, because your family were so loyal to one another that it had to be jarring to work for somebody who, in the end, her husband had some failings with loyalty. And you write in all the frenzied speculation about why Hillary Clinton stayed in her marriage, that it was a political arrangement, that he did it, that she did it so she could launch a political career of her own. Skeptics tended to rush over the very obvious explanation. She did it because she believed it was the right thing to do for herself and her family. And with that, I want to set up an issue that happened in your own relationship, because obviously Anthony Weiner, who was somebody obviously so different from you, different in religion, different ethnically in every way, you're married. Uh, what drew you to him, first of all, initially? Well, you know, I, I, I fell in love with this, his, you know, his exuberant, he was smart and he was interesting and he was in public service and it felt like our values and principles are very much aligned. And as I tell in the story, I mean, we met in 2001, kind of you know, just went our separate ways, but he, there was an attraction to him. And, um, and I really felt like, uh, you know, uh, he was my friend before he was anything else. Yeah. And I, we sort of fell in love by accident with all the things that happened between 2011 and 20, uh, I think you guys left uh, separated in 2016. Why'd yeah. you stay? Well, I think a lot of people look at our relationship now through a 2021 lens. And I yeah. think in the moment, the first time that, you know, the story broke about, you know, Anthony's scandal, I, we were newlyweds. We were living this extraordinary life. I was at Buckingham Palace, you know, deeply, madly in love with my husband. He was the first man I had ever been with. Um, and so I was in shock, but I was also carrying his child. I mean, yeah. I, I really, I, we just talked about my father, you know, I did not have a choice when my father was taken from me. Yeah. And knowing I was carrying his child, I knew that I wanted to give my son the opportunity to be raised in a household with two parents. Yeah. Obviously, over the years, things escalated. And in every one of those instances, Joy, I really tried to make the best decision for my son, for myself, until I got to the point where I just couldn't do it anymore. All right, much more of Joy's interview with Huma Abedin after the break, including James Comey's role in the 2016 election and Michelle Bachman's baseless attacks on her family. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back. We've got more now from Joy's interview with Huma Abedin. 
let's talk about something that involves your your, your husband, involves uh, Anthony Weiner, but also involves the election. The 2016 election was so traumatizing for so many people. I want to play for you. This is three for my producers. Um, and this is the moment James Comey made an announcement. Breaking news tonight, a bombshell from the FBI director, 11 days to the election, the feds investigating newly discovered emails related to the Hillary Clinton private server case, found during a separate probe into sexting allegations against her top aide's husband, Anthony Weiner. New information still coming in, Donald Trump seizing on a stunning turn of events. You write about your feelings in that moment toward Anthony Weiner, but also toward Jim Comey. Talk about that. Well, in that moment, what I felt, and as I, I recount in the book, I walk into this restroom and I, it felt selfish to feel for myself. Um, it was, I was so shocked. I had thought I, you know, controlled the situation. I thought I had figured this out. I had tried, you know, to help Anthony in as best a way I possibly could, even though I really was not capable and, you know, was not successful doing that. You know, to me, I just didn't understand why nobody had reached out to make this earth shattering revelation 11 days before the election, an unprecedented move. It's not something I'm saying. I mean, others have said in the history, the past 70 years, no FBI director had done anything like this. And for me, part of the shock joy was the fact that I would have gladly cooperated, provided whatever information that I was asked. And I write the story in the book right at the beginning of the campaign when the FBI investigation started. I'm sitting in a conference room with Hillary and I see some articles saying that, you know, State Department aides were asked to provide information to the FBI, see my name, and no one had contacted me. I go back to my office and contact a lawyer friend saying, okay, this is saying that I need to provide information. I would have been happy to provide that information. It is why the shock at that announcement. And then obviously the two days before the election, the second bombshell, which I think, you know, helped her opponent uh, even more. I think it's not even arguable that that changed absolutely the trajectory of the last end of that campaign. Uh, One other thing. Now, you being known and not known, like people know who you are. Um, You are this sort of glamorous presence that people know vaguely who you are. Unfortunately, one of the ways that people know who you are is the right was vicious toward you. They used you, and and in some ways the fact that you couldn't respond because you were the person off to the side. And they used you as sort of a battering ram. Um, Michelle Bachman, many people may or may not remember her, she wrote the following. She wrote a letter accusing you of being connected to the Muslim Brotherhood, saying influence operations and Muslim Brotherhood and security concerns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Talk about being a Muslim woman in a country that as you said, being American is so fundamental to who you are, and yet you're being attacked by somebody you know that, that you can't hit them back. And, and if you could also include in that being in a country that did the Muslim ban, how do you feel about those two pieces? You of know, that incident um, as a whole was probably one of the hardest things I have ever had to deal with in my adult life, and in part because... I was raised in the Clinton School of Politics. You're used to the smears. You're used to the negative statements. You're used to the lies. And back in the 90s with the 24-hour news cycle, you did not acknowledge a lot of, you know, the fake news. You drove the proactive message of the day. Well, now we've, and by 2012, we had moved into the social media world where you are in a 24-second news cycle. 
And I felt so paralyzed because they were attacking my family and my father, who was not even allowed or able to defend himself. And when you know who my father is and his whole approach to the world was talking to the other, was going into conversations where, you know, his friend, as his allies would say, don't go to the, you know, into these conversations where even angels fear to tread. He was fearless about talking to the other side. So to do that to me, and it's why throughout the book I write, I write about the bombings in Africa uh, when President Clinton was president and in 1993 and the USS Cole, all these ways, all these horrible incidents that took place, but which as a result um, kind of made my religion into this boogeyman. I mean, Muslims became this sort of suspicious character And I, to some extent, felt like that whole experience was a little bit of an appetizer for Mm -hmm. what was about to come in 2016. She really, you know, presented this bomb and, you know, it it worked. It really worked. It was very, very difficult for me. It's difficult. It's a difficult story, but it's beautifully written. You're a good writer. If you ever decide to write a novel, you you, you do well. This is a brilliant book. Uh, It's called Both And. I'm going to hold a copy of it. You also get a copy of this, both because it is it isn't a a, a truly American story. It's an international story and it's a well-told story. Thank you. Thank you so much. Huma Abedin. It's such an honor. It's an honor to be with you. Thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Author of Both And. Get that book. That was a great interview. Still ahead, a potentially major turning point in the fight against COVID. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. All right. Well, today, a collective sigh of relief could be heard from millions of parents across the country. And that's because starting this morning, children ages 5 to 11 are finally getting COVID vaccinations. This is after the CDC gave the green light last night for the child-sized doses. Now, this could be a game changer for the more than 28 million kids now eligible. I have my vaccine and life just going to be better. I can be back to normal in my classroom and in the school so we can have recess all together. But the latest Kaiser Family Foundation poll finds that a third of parents are just not quite yet ready for their kids to roll up their sleeves, and 30% say their children definitely will not get the vaccine. Today, President Biden implored hesitant parents to reach out to their family doctors to get their questions answered. After almost 18 months of anxious worrying every time, the children, your child had a sniffle or started to cough. Well, you can now protect them from this horrible virus. But I also know that some families might have questions. So trusted messengers like your pediatricians, family doctors will be able to answer your questions. Talk to parents about the importance of their getting their kids vaccinated and put your mind at ease. Family doctors, not social media. And another positive COVID news, it appears that the vaccine mandates are actually working. For all the fear-mongering that the mandates would lead to these mass firings of first responders, police officers, and firefighters, it ain't happening. Like right here in New York City, where the police unions threatened to ma- the mandate would re- re- uh, relieve upwards of 10,000 officers. Uh, that number at the beginning of the week was only a whopping 34. And according to the police commissioner, their 85% of the NYPD staff are now vaccinated. All right, that is tonight's readout. Don't worry, Joy will be back tomorrow.
Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com slash win.